<clears throat> you should be impressed. And just want to point out, too, we're pausing our study here until September. So uh, those of you who are like, get to chapter 4 on this stuff about the Lord's return. Well, hang around. We'll get back to that. Next, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we start our summer series as we normally do, and we're going into the book of Exodus. We finished that lengthy study of Genesis, finished that last year. And so next week, we're going to dive into the book of Exodus and start studying that through our summer months. But you say, well, why kick this off now and then pause it? Well, I just felt like it. (laughs) It's about as spiritual as it gets. (laughs) We do want to talk about spiritual growth. I don't know if you've played a game that has no rules. Those are frustrating. Or maybe you've been involved in a competitive event with someone and you assumed rules, but they were never stated. We kind of found ourselves at that place this past Monday evening as we sat down on Memorial Day for a game of dominoes. I know, don't judge. A Baptist playing dominoes can be a scary thing. Or for some of you, it just became liberating, I'm sure. But we did, and it's a game we've played lots of times. But we found ourselves at this point where we said, all right, can you make that move or not make that move? Because I was pretty convinced if I could, I would win this game. And if I couldn't, I was dead. So we had to pause and restate the rules. And I found myself very disappointed. (laughs) It's just the way it worked. And you know that. If you don't know the rules, if the rules are not stated then the end of the game or the end of the competition is disappointed because you don't know who's going to win. You don't know who's going to lose. You you don't know. And I would suggest to you that not understanding the ground rules for what it takes to grow spiritually can be equally frustrating and disappointing. Because if Christ-likeness is the goal, what is legitimately involved in the process for actually getting to Christ-likeness? How do you get there? What are the ground rules to get there? How do you know if you're growing? How do you assess whether or not you're actually growing as a Christian in Christ-likeness? It reminds me a little bit about the painful scene that Jesus paints in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 to 23, where he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not, you remember that? Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. But we did these things in your name. But what were the ground rules? From where did those come? Is it enough just for you to determine what is and isn't acceptable and make those the ground rules for yourself? All just to find out when you see the Lord face to face that he never knew you? These people Jesus refers to assumed the ground rules for glory were all about astounding feats of spirituality, when in reality, the ground rules were really just about knowing the Lord and what it means to know the Lord. No one begins the Christian life in practical perfection. We all recognize that growth is needed. We need to grow. But how do you know the right way to grow? 
What are the ground rules for growing spiritually? Well, that's what we're going to look at, not just now, but as we re-enter into the book of 1 Thessalonians in the fall as well, we're going to be talking about spiritual growth. But here we're going to lay down the ground rules. Here's how you're going to grow as a Christian. These rules have to govern how you think about growth. Now, if you think back to, if you were with us back in February when we started this study of this book, in our introductory message, we, we said the main theme of this book is to grow in what you know, to grow in what you know. And so if you think back on this church, it was a very well-taught church going through painfully difficult circumstances. So what should they emphasize in the midst of all of those circumstances that were challenging? What should they emphasize in order to grow? Well, Paul, from chapter 1 through chapter 3, has been reminding them repeatedly all the way through up to this point in the book of what they know. In fact, he uses that phrase over and over, as you know, as you know. In chapter 1, verse 4, verse 5, in chapter 2, verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, even verse 9, he says, recall these things. Verse 10, you are witnesses. They know a lot. He's going to use that phrase, as you know, a couple of more times in chapter 4, verse 2, and in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He's going to remind them of things in chapter 4 that he had told them before. In verse 9 of chapter 4, he's going to tell them of things they don't need anyone to write to them about because they already know these things. They already know it. It's a well-taught church. But they need to grow in the truths that they already know. In fact, you can see that as the emphasis in verse 1. He's talking to them about things we request, we exhort you in the Lord that as you receive from us instruction, that's stuff they know, right? As to how you ought to walk and please God, that's how to live the Christian life. That's what we've been talking to you about all along. Just as you actually do walk, so you, you know these things, you are doing it, but what do you need to do now? What should be the emphasis? Excel still more. What does that mean? Grow. Grow. You have a lot of knowledge. You need to grow in that knowledge. You're well taught. You need to grow. Now this has been a drumbeat that we've heard coming all along, especially toward the end of chapter 3. In verse 8, Paul wanted them to stand firm in the Lord. That's what means most to them. And so he says in verse 10, he indicated that their faith still needed areas of growth. You have true faith, but it's still lacking, and I want to come and make up for what's lacking. Chapter 3, verse 12, he even told them, you need to increase and abound in love for one another. Meaning you need to grow. You need to grow. And so you see the emphasis In fact, verses 1 and 2 are really just a heading for the rest of the book. It's just a heading. Grow even more. Grow beyond immorality. That's where he's going to go next. Grow more in your love for one another. Grow in your hope that's connected to the return of the Lord. And even grow in how you live as a community of faith. That's how the rest of the book lays out. You need to grow even more. 
So before he tells them what to do, he's laying down what we could call are the ground rules for how to grow. We know that growth is not going to happen automatically. That's not God's plan in the Christian life is that you become the Christian and then somehow without any effort or any involvement on your part or any intentionality on your part, you just automatically start growing. You don't have to do anything. It just happens. Now, some of us live as if, well, I'm praying and so that ought to have an effect. But, but what, are you, what are you doing to grow in what you know? Well, I'm, I'm just waiting for the Lord to make it happen. Well, don't be surprised when it's not happening because you have to grow. Effort is involved. And as we're going to see here, effort does not cancel out grace. You say, wait a minute. We believe in salvation by grace alone, not by works. I do too. I think that's the biblical doctrine. But if you say, Once I'm in faith, no effort's required. I would come back and say, you don't know the gospel. Not just you don't know spiritual growth, you don't know the gospel. And Paul says that explicitly here. So then what are the ground rules for how you grow? Believe it or not, I'm going to find six of them in these two verses. Yeah, I know. Some of you are true believers. Six different ground rules. Let's walk through them together. And they govern spiritual growth. In fact, you have to embrace these these ground rules for spiritual growth if you want to avoid becoming stagnant as a Christian. Some of you are stagnant. Some of you have not been growing and you've reached this place where you say, I'm not seeing progress. Then you need to rethink what you're doing with these ground rules. So six ground rules that govern spiritual growth. Let's look at them together. First of all, the first rule, growth flows from genuine faith. True spiritual growth flows from from genuine faith. This is the fundamental ground rule for all true spiritual growth. Growth flows from genuine faith. Now, where do we see that in these verses? Well, we see it in the very first two words. What are those first two words? Look down at the the text in front of you. Finally, then. Wow, let's, let's squeeze these words a little bit. What is he saying? Finally, then. The word finally is really the word in Greek that simply refers to what is remaining, what's left. What is remaining, the rest. This is not him introducing the the conclusion of the book. This is him, this is Paul getting to what is left after he's talked about, you have true faith. I've seen true faith in you. So now, based on that, let me get to what's left. What's left in the conversation about where you are in your Christian life? What's left? And don't skip over that word, then. It's really, really important, especially for spiritual growth. All of your spiritual growth actually hinges on that little word, then. It's the typical word that we translate as, therefore. Now, getting to the rest, therefore, meaning based on what I've said for three chapters. What I have said, then, 
is the ground floor for your growth. You can't excel more if you don't have true faith, which is all of what he's talking about in the first three chapters. Brethren, people who are in the faith, Remind yourself just for a moment about the organization of this book that Paul detailed for us back in chapter 1, verse 3. Do you remember what he was thankful for? He brought up three realities in their life that he was thankful for. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. And if you remember, that's a virtual outline for the book. The work of faith is described in the first three chapters. When you get to chapter 4 and verse 3, you're going to see him talk from verse 3 down to verse 12 about what the labor of love actually looks like. You'll see him come back to the labor of love in a few verses in chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. You're going to see what steadfastness of hope looks like and what that should like when you get to chapter 4. And you look at verse 13, and he starts talking about the coming of the Lord that extends all the way into chapter 5, verse 11. That's about what steadfastness connected to hope looks like. But all of that is dependent on the first three chapters, what the work of faith consists of. Love flows from faith. Hope is connected to your faith. So to get to the rest... It has to be founded on what the work of faith is. And you know, as we've been studying this, Paul had one singular concern for this church when he was run out of that that town. Do they still believe? Do they have true faith? When I could stand it no longer. You remember that in chapter 3? I had to send Timothy to find out about your faith. Is it a real work of faith? And when I couldn't stand it any longer, I had to find out about your faith. Chapter 3, verse 1, verse 5, I had to know. And then he tells them, I'm overjoyed. You have true faith. And you can see it in the way you're persevering and you're going through all of these struggles that you're, you're walking through and all of this opposition to your faith. You are persevering and you have not left the gospel that we have given to you. So these last two chapters are founded upon the first three, which by the way, that's a normal way that Paul writes, isn't it? If you look at the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters are all the theological groundswell for how to apply justification by faith or the gospel of God to the situations that they are going through in their churches in the city of Rome, which is detailed in chapters 12 through 16. Here's what the gospel is, and here's how the gospel lives. Here's what you believe, and here's what you do with it. Same thing happens in in the book of Ephesians, three chapters Three chapters unfolding all the rich spiritual blessings that come to us in Christ so that you can get to chapters 4, 5, and 6 and said, here's what the gospel looks like. Here's how you apply it. Here's what you do with it. This is normal for Paul. So chapters 1 through 3 here, the rehearsal of your true faith. This is the true work of faith. And it's the basis for your growth, which he's going to talk about in chapters 4 and 5. So get this into your mind. We all have to go over this over and over. 
If any of us pursues the lifestyle of Christianity based on any other motivation, any other intention, any other belief other than the foundational confidence that we have in Jesus and the work that he sufficiently accomplished on the cross, whatever lifestyle comes from this effort that's opposite of Christ and the cross is not gospel living. It might be moral, it might look righteous, but it's not from faith. The only way to see Jesus and hear well done is to live your life based on true belief in Christ. Not anything else. Not another hope. Not another belief. Only in what true faith consists of. Faith in Jesus assumes then that you're most concerned about what it means to be accepted by God more than others. Right? Isn't that what faith is all about? Am I finding acceptance from God or am I looking for acceptance from someone else? Because here's the issue. Jesus is the only key that unlocks the door to being accepted by God, right? His righteousness, his life, his death, his resurrection applied to you is the only way you find acceptance from God. You say, well, we all believe that. Well, think about this. I find so many people experience such massive problems with anxiety, guilt, immorality, depression, and a host of other so-called mental and behavioral disorders because they're mentally and behaviorally fixated with a concern about personal acceptance. Or, I have what I want, but I need from that person or that culture or that job or that whatever it is, I have to hear more and more and more to keep feeling accepted because I haven't really believed that what Jesus did was sufficient to make me accepted by God. So I'm fixated on trying to find it somewhere else. That's not faith, is it? That's not faith in Jesus. But the Thessalonians are being challenged. What do you hope in? What do you live for? Is it Christ? Because every, everything in culture is slamming against their life. And what keeps coming out is... We're suffering, but Jesus is sufficient. We're accepted by God. It doesn't seem like anybody else does, but, but God accepts us because of what he did in Christ, and that's faith. So then what do you do with that? You see what it means to live by faith? You see why faith is so critical? Your anxieties, your depression, and all the destructive behaviors that flow from them are tied to your fears in relation to being accepted or affirmed by others preserving some supposed freedom that you think you deserve and must have in order to thrive from the people that you're convinced you're trying are trying to take it from you or you need to have it from and so you live every day with the mindset that the pursuit that this creates and the responses that come from it they begin to just virtually devour you have you noticed that 
And you start making massive life mistakes. Living in constant fear. Living with what the world calls anxiety attacks, which is just the long-term effects of not trusting Christ. Or anger or frustration that starts touching everyone around you. And in the end of all of it, if you've not trusted Christ, you actually have not solved your worst problem in life. Because if you're not living by faith, you're still not accepted by God. The only way to have acceptance by God is trusting Jesus alone. And that then launches you into spiritual growth. If you want to grow, all true growth must flow from complete confidence that Jesus is everything you need. And he's worth losing everything you prize in life. That's how valuable he is. That's the first principle. That's the first ground rule for any spiritual growth. Growth flows from genuine faith. Second, another ground rule. Growth is necessary. Growth is necessary. You cannot stay on center. If you are not growing, you are likely dying. You can't stay on center. You can't remain an infant. You must not settle for initial faith. You must grow into a deeper, thriving faith. That's what he said at the end of chapter 3. Your love must increase and abound. You have it, but you have to grow it. It's got to keep growing. So notice how he expresses the necessity of growth in the next phrase. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. This is not optional. We request, that is, we're asking, we're making an appeal. I want you to think about this. I'm asking you to seriously think about this issue. And I exhort you. This is actually the same word in the Greek New Testament as a term that Paul has already used earlier in the book to describe encouragement. Parakaleo. It's a normal term. It's a frequently used term. Sometimes it means to encourage. Like in chapter 3, verse 2, Timothy was sent to encourage them as to their faith. In chapter 3, verse 7, Paul was encouraged, or it's translated in the New American Standard as comforted, which is a good translation, comforted, encouraged, through their faith. And yet when this word parakaleo is used in reference to commands, like it is in verse 2 of chapter 4, you know what commandments we gave you. When this word is used in relationship to instruction or commands, typically it carries the connotation not of just encouragement and comfort, but exhortation. It gains intensity. I strongly urge you. I'm exhorting you. I request you like the friend I am with you. And he rehearsed his friendship with them. And how dear to them. That's why I'm I'm asking you to think about this. But I'm exhorting you because he's an apostle. He's a shepherd. He's a pastor. I'm telling you, you've got to give attention to this. And this request and this exhortation is in the Lord Jesus. In the Lord Jesus. Meaning, this request, this exhortation, it's as if 
Christ himself in his sovereign lordship is telling you to do this. Whatever I'm saying here, the Lord is saying to you. That doesn't sound optional to me. What is he saying? Grow, excel. I'm requesting and exhorting that you excel still more. This is the Lord himself telling every single one of us, you cannot stay where you are. You must grow. Growth is necessary. This is not Paul's personal perspective. It's not his opinion based on himself. No, this is the Lord. Excel still more. You don't have to worry about, all right, well, how much is enough? He doesn't say that. Just grow. Well, what if, what if I just grow like a centimeter when I feel like I should have grown a foot? I'm always happy with progress. The Lord knows where we are, what's going on. He knows what we need in the moment we need it. He, he's just calling us, move forward. Move forward. One step at a Don't think that you've got to accomplish all your sanctification by, by Monday morning. That's how we usually wake up on Monday. Oh, I'm not perfect yet. Oh, we laugh, but we kind of think that way at times. No, you're not. Keep going. Grow. Excel still more. It's necessary. Continual progress. Not immediate perfection. That's the call. That's the requirement. So don't get anxious about how much or how little. Grow. And I I think about this when I hear Paul say this. I know my own heart, and I've been around you long enough to know some of your hearts to some degree. We need voices like this in our life, don't we? We need Apostle Paul's saying, friend, I'm asking you to think about this. We need shepherds saying, you can't keep going down that road. You have to think about your growth. We need those voices. But in a culture that has been really prizing self-autonomy like an idol, like I'm my own master of my own ship, and I don't need authority in my life. In fact, have you seen what we're doing with authority? We're calling authority, almost all authority today, abuse. Now, there is a kind of authoritarianism that makes themselves the standard and says, you do what I say as I say it. That can be used in abusive ways. And there are too many examples of that. And all of us who are exercising authority in any realm, whether it's parents or grandparents, whether it's in in a work situation, if it's in the church... We have to be careful. We can't make ourselves the authority. It's not our personal practical applications that must be the demand. But that doesn't mean authority is wrong. We still need someone in our life who's saying, friend, think about this. The sheep need to hear the shepherd saying, I'm telling you, you do this. Here's the consequences. Stop. We need those voices. As long as the words in the voice of authority match the written revelation of God of what he 
has told us clearly to do, we should listen to that as if the Lord himself was speaking to us. Because we all need to grow. And growth is necessary. Now, one more thing before we go past this. If God says to you, growth is necessary, and you start saying, but I don't know if I see... Listen, don't worry. Every command God asks of you, everyone, he gives you the ability to obey it. Every time. That's the foundation of the gospel. So if he says grow, he's going he's to grow you. You're going to grow. You can grow. It's not just a request and requirement. It's also a promise. If he commands it, he promises. So think on that. So, all right. Now, again, it's not going to happen by osmosis. It's not going to just happen by you. Let go, let God. I know, I know that's popular. It's pop, you know why it's popular? Because it's easy. And it doesn't work. Not if Christ-likeness is the goal. Fix some moral problems. Maybe you can do that. But not a, you can't attain Christ-likeness that way. But listen, if he expects it, he'll give it to you. Third ground rule for spiritual growth. A third ground rule. Growth is tied to revealed truth. Growth is tied to revealed truth. You say, well, I, that sounds like the first principle. Well, it differentiates itself a little bit. First, you have to have true belief. You have to exercise true faith. That's what we're talking about in the beginning. But here we're going to say, if you grow, it has to be based on truth you have already welcomed into your life. Truth you have received. The Bible has to already be agreed to in your heart. And therefore, the Bible then becomes the content from which you begin to grow. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction, as you have received instruction, excel still more. So what's he suggesting? Excelling is going to be based on teaching we have already heard and we've already received. Now, how many of you have ever been frustrated with like, I already know that. This pastor's already said that. I already know those things. I've heard that before. Well, did you ever think that in the providence of God, you've heard it before and you're hearing it again because he thinks you're not doing it? Could that be? Or are you just assuming, I'm sure it's that half of the room that's not doing it? Or that half? Or the person sitting next to me is not doing it? And that's why we're here this morning. I know this. I'm here for their benefit. That could be. You might be right. But even if you are there for their benefit, my guess is you have to grow too. Maybe just in being more patient with the person who's not doing enough. Truth that you have already affirmed is the truth on which you must continually grow. You've received this from us. So excel excel still more. I just want to remind you, what what did they receive? Well, he said it in so many different ways back in chapters 1 through 3. He called it our gospel, chapter 1, verse 5, the word, 
chapter 1, verse 6. The gospel of God, chapter 2, verses 2, verses 8, verses 9. He called it our exhortation, chapter 2, verse 3. He called it the gospel in chapter 2, verse 4. He called it the word of God in chapter 2, verse 13. That's what they received. His preaching is what they welcomed. All kinds of instruction on all kinds of issues. All tied to, yes, what it means to believe in Christ, but even deeper. They did not merely receive instruction about the atonement or the storyline of Scripture or the biblical meta narrative. They got more than that. How to live in moral purity and holiness. What does it look like to love each other? What does hope look like? Likely, I think, when you get to chapter 5 and you you see him rattle off almost in machine gun-like way, he lists all of these quick commands like in verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. I, I take it to mean he didn't have to say a whole lot about these things because he had already taught them about this. He's just bringing it up again. You've received this. I've given you so much instruction and truth and you have to grow based on what? I don't have new things to tell you. There's not more revelation to give you. I've been giving you everything I've got. So you got to grow in it. Growth is always tied to the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Always. You never get to a place in your Christian life where the truths of the beginning become unnecessary, obsolete, or should be taken for granted. Ever. Paul is saying, go back again, rehearse what we taught you about everything, and grow, excel still more. So think about this. We, we do this with our children from, from first grade all the way through, through sixth grade. We're going to teach them all the way through the Bible three different times in ever-deepening ways. Those children who go out into the the service time when we're teaching them there, they're learning systematic theology for for years of their life. We we have courses that one, like we just started today, Fundamentals of the Faith, where we're going to talk about who God is and what he's like, who Jesus is, what did he do, what does salvation consist of, how is the Bible sufficient, who is the Holy Spirit, what is his role, what does he do, what is the church, why is it important, who's a part of it, how should it function, what's its role in our life, in the life of the culture. How do we pray? How do we read our Bibles? How do we fellowship with other Christians? How do we discern what the will of God is? What does the future look like? What should our life look like as we live for Jesus and wait for him to come? All of that's stuff we teach all the time. We're teaching in fundamentals of the faith right now. Those are fundamental doctrines and we build our knowledge and understanding to ever increasing degrees on those. You never really get beyond them. You just get deeper in them. And I don't mean by that you just need to expand your knowledge. You need to read more books and just gain more ground. I think knowledge is important. I think knowledge is very important. It needs to always be growing. You always live lower than what you know. Have you ever noticed that? Jerry Bridges talks about that in his little book, The Pursuit of Holiness. He, He gives this little scale and says, your knowledge is always growing up and up, but your practice is so far behind it. It's always lagging behind. And that gap between the two is what he normally calls guilt. Right? You know, and here's what you're doing, and the gap is guilt. 
And the Holy Spirit uses that to say, grow still more. The devil uses it to try to discourage you. So listen, I I just said, listen to the Spirit. He says, grow, grow. I'm not showing you your your lack of behavior in terms of what you know to frustrate you. I'm showing you, let's grow. Let's grow together. So don't just expand the knowledge for knowledge's sake, though. So maybe some of you, it's not too late. If you didn't get into the fundamentals of the faith, faith class, you can still come. We're opening up another room just to accommodate the, the crowd. It's good. You should be there for that. But we don't need just to gain more knowledge. We need to use it. In fact, most issues in biblical counseling over behavior or thinking, it's fascinating to me, they almost always go back to some issue related to what I could call systematic theology. Do you know that? Almost every issue that we're dealing with fits in a category of systematic theology that's simply not being applied to how we think and live. Anxiety and depression are likely related to your theology proper, your doctrine of God, what you believe about God and how you're applying that belief to your thinking in very practical ways. It's more than that, but that's probably somewhere in there. Immorality that you're involved in is likely related to your harmardiology, the doctrine of sin. Or soteriology, your understanding of salvation and what sanctification should look like and consist of how you're actually using those beliefs in relationship to what you expect and what you do. Your satisfaction at work, at home, in marriage, in society is likely related to, in some degree, your eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. You say, what do you mean? In what are you hoping? What's your expectation in your job? What are you living for? What are you trying to attain and achieve? And, is, and when you're not making it, how's that frustrating you? You're thinking, I don't have the perfect marriage and and I've been married for all these years and why isn't it perfect yet? Well, what's your eschatology tell you? The degree to which you're involved in the life of the church is related to your ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. What you think about the importance, the role, the functions of the church in relation to your life and your growth. When, When you're not applying it, you set different expectations than the Bible does. And it goes on and on and on. All growth is tied to receive truth. So you might indeed be a true believer in Christ and what you need to do is take the things that you know, dig a little deeper and apply them more thoroughly. All growth is tied to receive truth. Let's look at a fourth ground rule for spiritual growth. A fourth ground rule. Growth is about living for God's pleasure. It's ground rule, foundational, right at the beginning. All growth is about living for God's pleasure. Now, we have to be careful with that, don't we? You see it in the text, though. As you receive from us instruction, and what did that instruction consist of? As to how you ought to walk and please God. As to how you ought to walk and please God. That's what the instruction was about. That instruction, if you remember, that that they received was the gospel. 
It was the word of God, as we we detailed. That received instruction was the gospel, and it included how to walk and please God. Now, I don't know how much you pay attention to some of the theological voices in our world today, but perhaps you've heard someone suggest that if you try to live in order to please God, you're not living in grace. I want to suggest to you that that is a dangerous way to think. And it most often leads to sinful choices because of spiritually lazy approaches to God, couched in terminology of grace. I mean, look at what Paul says about that instruction. Excel still more in what instruction? As to how you ought to walk and please God. Now that phrase, as to how you ought to walk and please God, goes together. It grammatically is all tied together. There's two verbs, to walk and to please God, and they're tied together with one article in the Greek text, meaning this is the how you must walk and please God instruction. Or as some have said, this is how you must live in a God-pleasing way. How do you live your life in a God-pleasing way? This is instruction on how you must live in God's pleasure. The word walk means to live your life, to carry out your normal daily life. So it is right to say that the focus of the Christian life is living in a way that is pleasing to God. That's right. That's good. Living in order to please God is how we live. Now, living life in order to try to gain God, let's see if I can please him enough so he'll accept me, is different than being in Christ and living in a way that is pleasing to him. You're not going to gain the acceptance of God by your life. That's accomplished by Jesus. And by the way, do you remember at his baptism and at the transfiguration, what did God the Father say of the Son? It is in him, this man, in whom is all my pleasure. I am well pleased, right? So if I am in him, what do I have from the Father? Pleasure from God. But then how do I live day to day to day? I need to live in that pleasure. Live in what faith then should look like. Which is pleasing to God. Faith makes you his child. He then is your father. And you enter into a relationship with him. So think about this. In a family, a normal family, can a child ever disappoint a parent It's a real question. Yes. And when that child disappoints that parent, do they cease to be a child of that parent? Did that child become a child of that parent because they earned their way into that family by their good works and efforts? No. But that child can disappoint a parent. And that child can live in a way that brings joy to that parent's heart, right? The, the book of Proverbs even alludes to this. It even says it outright. Like Proverbs 10.1, the Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Now, it doesn't say a foolish son is no longer a son because of his foolishness. 
Or, this son is more of a son because of his good and wise behavior. He makes the father happy when he lives wisely. He grieves his mother when he lives in a foolish way. Can you grieve the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 4 says you can. Doesn't mean you're not a child of God because you grieve. So don't you want to live in a way that's pleasing to the Father? That doesn't determine whether you're a child or not. It's how you enjoy that relationship that exists. Living to please God is not about living to gain a relationship with God. It's living within the relationship that has been given to you. Now, Paul's already alluded to that in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. He said, I don't live to please men, but God. And he's not saying that's contrary to grace. I live to please God. My life is all about the pleasure of God. He even implies that pleasing God is precisely how we should seek to live when he gave in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, the illustration of the soldier. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. When he brings you in, you want to live for his pleasure. The Apostle Paul suggests that a person who is single and unmarried has the full freedom to please the Lord and that that's a good thing. 1 Corinthians 7.32, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. It's not contrary to grace. That's because of grace. God's pleasure becomes your extreme interest, your most satisfying pursuit. And that doesn't nullify grace. It doesn't neuter justification by faith alone. It actually is the result of justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone creates a people who love to live for the pleasures of God. And when God calls you to himself, he's not saying to you, live for my pleasure, you'll have none for yourself. Just live for my pleasure and and your disgruntled nature. People, People assume that all the time. I could have more pleasure if I wasn't so constrained by these commands from God. It's limiting my freedom. And you may think that for a little while until you get really close to people who've lived like that. And you get close enough to them. And you find them and you see that their joys are all short-lived. They lack substance, no depth. Their sorrows then begin to last longer and they're darker and they're deeper and their depressions are consuming all because they want to live in freedom from God. That doesn't sound like pleasure to me. Why do you think that our culture is so enraptured with conversations about depression and anxiety and discouragement. Why? Because we're not living for the pleasure of God. His pleasures are not natural to our sinful condition. They're not naturally desired by us. They must be pursued within faith. When pleasing him with all of your life is the highest pleasure in life, guess what's going to happen? You will grow. You'll grow. That's a ground rule. You've got to live for the pleasures of God. A fifth ground rule for spiritual growth. Number five, 
Growth is not satisfied with present progress. Growth is not satisfied with present progress. Doesn't doesn't mean by that that growth is always dissatisfied in some disgruntled way. Growth, if you're going to grow, it can't settle in and say, that's enough. It can't. Notice, the Apostle Paul wants them to be encouraged here in verse 1. As you received instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, he makes this statement, just as you actually do walk, you are doing it. It's not that I don't see any growth. It's not that I don't see you living for the Lord. You are. You are walking with the Lord. You are living for God's pleasure. But the next statement, excel still more. You know what that's like. At work, you look at a project that's been given to you. You give a lot of time and energy to it. You get it done. You look back on it and say, it's done. Worked. Great. And next time I could probably do this and I could do it a little better. Right. How many athletes finish the race and they look back and say, I think I could do it a little better. How many of your kids, you you give them a task and they do the task and they get it done and you think, it's good. It could be a little better. You say, oh, you don't want to, you don't want to do that to your children, don't you? Don't you, don't you want to say, I don't want you to have to be satisfied with just this, this halfway approach. We could grow more. If I live for the pleasures of God, I don't want to get satisfied with just small, small pleasures. Don't you want more of them? Greater ones? Deeper ones? You're not satisfied with just present progress. Excel still more. Press on to greater glory, deeper growth, more understanding of Christ in your circumstances. You've seen this in your Christian life. The the early days of your Christian life are, are such joyful, liberating days, aren't they? Because you know what you're doing in the beginning days of your Christian life? You're applying the gospel to the most obvious areas of life that need change. And you, can, you breathe a little easier. You feel it. It's so pleasurable. Then, then you live for a few years and those things are kind of settled. And you start to say, I'm, I'm getting kind of discouraged. I'm not seeing progress and growth. Why? Because you've, you've handled the big areas. Now the Lord's starting to to tailor the look and the target down to smaller areas that require more understanding or deeper application or more personal ways to think about this. And you have to change your thinking that have been habits of thinking for a long time, right? It becomes a little more challenging. You are walking in the Lord, but you need to grow a little more. Excel, progress, grow. Yeah, it's, it's like the Israelites, yesterday, yesterday's manna, it's not going to work for tomorrow. You need, you need to keep growing, be dependent, but grow even more. And we can do that as a church body too, in such a way that we, we achieve this kind of cultural holiness. Again, Jerry Bridges in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, talks about that. A congregation gets to this level where we're just really satisfied where we all, with where we all are spiritually. Here's the standard. And someone who pokes above that standard, we're like, oh, that's a fanatic. Don't watch them. 
Does this make the rest of it a little uncomfortable? We kind of need those fanatics every now and then, right? Yep. As good as things may be, you can grow a little more. Let's look at the sixth and final ground rule for spiritual growth. Growth is connected to obeying God's word. Growth is connected to obedience. Obeying the scripture. Notice verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now, pay attention to that first word, for. It's explaining something that came before it. And what came before it? We taught you. You received it. We taught you the gospel. We taught you the word of God. We instructed you. You welcomed it. Excel still more. And you know what commandments we gave you. What are the commandments? The same thing that the instructions were. This is fascinating to me. The word commandments here is a very strong word in the New Testament for orders. It's, a, it's used in a military context at time to talk about giving strict orders. Most military commanders are not instructing their soldiers to think about obeying. Give some consideration to whether or not you should do this. Right, Mike? No, he's saying, no, that's not how we normally... You're given orders. That's why they call them. They send you there. They're called orders. They're not called pray about it. They're orders. That's the word here, commandments. And what are these commandments? It's just a synonym for the instructions he gave. And the instructions he gave, he called them the gospel or the word of God. Commandments and gospel are not antithetical to one another. They're synonymous with one another. This text shows you that. To not obey is to not walk in the gospel. That's very clear. Very clear. Now, I'm sure that the Apostle Paul would love you to contemplate Christ more. To think about his glories. To dwell on them. To take out John Owen's book called The Glory of Christ. And read about the depths of the glories of Christ. But you must not stop at contemplation. It's not intended. Jesus did not intend you to understand the depths of who he is so that you would just enjoy knowing who he is. Now live in it. Obey what his nature calls you to obey and live like. You know what commandments we gave you through the Lord as if we were speaking on the Lord's behalf. If you don't apply and you don't obey, then do you really know him? If you really know who the Lord Jesus is, and yet you say, I don't, I'm not feeling, feeling it today. He didn't ask you if you were feeling it. He said, this is for your good. This is for your life. This is for your thriving. Obey this. Yes, it's hard. It goes against the grain of what you think you want or what you think 
and what all your friends and your co-workers and your family members are telling you will work. No, you know the commands. In fact, I would stop listening to voices that decry obedience in the name of elevating grace. I'd turn them off. And I'd, I'd instead, I'd focus on voices like Paul who can spend two chapters talking about faith and grace and then say, now, based on that, live, obey. Contemplating Jesus is not the same as obeying him. Now, you can't have one without the other. You can have obedience without really knowing Jesus, but it won't be real obedience and it won't be fueled by faith. But being stunned by grace has to precede obeying the commands of Scripture, but it cannot substitute obedience. It's like Paul said in Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've been obeying, now work it out. You say, well, that sounds austere and hard and works-based. But listen to the next phrase. Why do we obey Why do we work out our salvation? Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His pleasure working out in your obedience. That's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is sufficient, so repent. The gospel is Jesus has accomplished everything for you. Believe. That's the gospel. And it just gets deeper and deeper from there. Because he's sufficient, trust his word on this issue. Because he is sufficient, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You must follow it. You must obey. That, that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the ground rules for growth. It flows from genuine faith. It's necessary. It's tied to truth you've already seen. It's about living for God's pleasure. It's not satisfied with present progress. And growth is, not, is connected. It's connected to obeying God's word. violate the ground rules the end is disappointing know the ground rules live in them the end is incomprehensible isn't it and growth happens that's how you grow and we need to grow don't we let's pray together father we pray that we will not take for granted what we have studied and learned here. We pray that we will not take for granted that you have called us into 